It's good to see you guys. If you're a guest with us, my name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and it's my privilege this morning to lead us in the, the reading and the teaching of God's Word and, and to welcome you on this, what I consider to be extremely chilly Valentine's Day morning. Um, and not only is it Valentine's, which you've already heard, it's also the first Sunday of Lent. So it's kind of a fun juxtaposition there. And this morning, we're going to have time together to reflect and at the same time to respond to the unfailing love of God that honestly, if we really take a moment to think about it, uh, sets all of the other loves that we talk about on days like this um, into their proper perspective. This morning, we are going to spend some time in the final evening of Jesus' life. In fact, throughout the entire season of Lent, we'll be looking at Jesus' last hours on this earth. Um, If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 14. Feels like we've been in Mark 14 for a long time. It's the longest chapter in Mark's Gospel. and, And Mark has been very purposeful and very quick to get us to this spot. And then for Mark, he's going to slow down. And so we're going to slow down with him. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks, the Lenten season, looking at these final hours, this last evening of Jesus' life here on earth. And so if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to pick it up in verse 53. And before we begin to look at This scene that we have this morning in verse 53, I want you to just see for yourselves in your Bible a bit of the the literary structure that's going on here because it's helpful as you're reading the Bible, again, to see what Mark is doing to point our attention out, to to point us and our attention to particular things. So if you look at chapter 14, verse 53, some of your Bibles may note that Jesus is about to go before the council. And what I want you to see is that between verse 53 and and the first, let's see, five verses of chapter 15, there's going to be a series of trials that are going to happen. Jesus is going to undergo two distinct trials, one a religious trial and one a civil trial. But Mark, again, using a technique that Mark likes to use often and is used often in chapter 13 and 14, Mark is going to give us a sandwich again. And in between the two trials of Jesus, his religious trial and his civil trial, we're going to see another kind of trial, and it's going to be Peter. And Peter's going to face a particular type of trial this very same evening. And so next week, we're going to look at Peter's trial. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' religious trial. And so as you get yourself ready, we're going to pick up the story in verse 53. And and here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to set the stage, and we're going to go through it. And by God's grace, I'm, I'm going to trust and I'm going to ask that he is going to bring us to a place where we are going to be able to not only reflect on what was going on in the life of Jesus in this moment, but be able to respond to it in a way that's appropriate. So let's pray and then we'll look into God's word. Well, I thank you for the continued privilege to be here. I want to wake up this morning to, to be able to come together with brothers and sisters, to, to be able to use our bodies, use our mouths use our minds to make much of you. Uh, This morning I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would still our hearts, you'd still our minds, you'd you'd do something that we struggle with so much in moments like this. You, You would set aside the distractions that are pinging around inside of us, that we might hear you in your word this morning. We want to hear you, we want to see your son, 
By your grace, we want to respond to him appropriately. And we ask that, that you would do that for us, for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Verse 53 This is going to set up, in some sense, what's going to happen in the next few moments. If you remember last week, we saw Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends, handed over by Judas. And we pick the story up in verse 53, and it goes like this. They they led Jesus from his betrayal by Judas and his arrest there to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So this is the setup of what's actually happening here. Jesus is taken immediately from the garden where he was apprehended after Judas betrayed him to the house of the high priest. Cases, especially cases like this, are are not generally heard in the home of the high priest. You can read about what's actually happening right there in in John's account of this story, in the gospel according to John. But what you'll begin to pick up from the very beginning and what they're doing with Jesus and where they're taking Jesus is suspicious from the start. You should already have some antennas going up. Wait a minute, that, that doesn't seem right. This council that Mark is speaking of that has come together at the house of the high priest, he's, he's talking about the Sanhedrin. And as you're reading it, you've got to kind of begin to see, well, wait a minute, he, they take Jesus to the house of the high priest and the Sanhedrin is there. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 different men, scribes, Pharisees, uh, different religious leaders. It, it takes 23, according to the Mishnah, it takes 23 of the Sanhedrin to, to adjudicate on a capital case. And so at night, after having been betrayed, Jesus is arrested and he's not taken to the court. He's not taken to the temple. He's taken to the home of the high priest where there are already at least 23 members of the Sanhedrin, if not more, waiting for him. Something's not right. You can already get a sense of the premeditated nature of what's actually happening here. Jesus is now just one against at least 23 if not 71 or more, and all of them threatened by Jesus. And as Mark says, they were seeking testimony against him to put him to death. Meanwhile, Mark lets us know, as the story's going, there's a parallel story taking place. Meanwhile, in the courtyard, Peter has followed the crowd. And so if you're thinking about what's actually happening, you, you can kind of picture a, a quadrangle of a, of, a, of a palace there. So there's four sides to this palace, and in the middle there would have been a garden and a courtyard. And Jesus, with the council, is somewhere up on the second floor or so, and down in the courtyard where people are gathering, you find Peter. We're going to deal with Peter next week. That's a different kind of trial. But Jesus has been brought to a premeditated and hastily established trial before a group of men premeditatedly bent on his destruction. Sounds just, doesn't it? Verse 55 says the chief priests and the whole council, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. 
And so a, a line had begun forming there before the council of people willing to lie, willing to speak against this man, Jesus. And what you can begin to see is that they could manage to fabricate an illegitimate trial against Jesus, but they couldn't seem to fabricate a consistent testimony against Jesus. Again, the readiness of people being on the spot, ready to incriminate Jesus, only continues to speak to the unjust and premeditated nature of what's actually happening here. They knew Jesus was coming. They took their time to get all of this put together. Mark gives us a, a clear example of the kind of distortion that was being spoken about Jesus. Look at verse 57. Some stood up and, and they bore false witness against Jesus. And here, here's what they were saying. Here's an example. We heard him say, speaking of Jesus, I will destroy this temple that, you, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about their testimony, even about this, their testimony did not agree. They were speaking of, of something, they were alluding to something that, that John records in his gospel. In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, you, you'll find this. Jesus speaking says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so these people willing to come and to testify against Jesus, they can't even get their stories correct. But what you can see is that they're intentionally misquoting and twisting Jesus' words. He never said that he would tear that temple down. He was speaking of himself. But the irony is Jesus was actually saying something far deeper than what they were actually accusing him of. You see, the temple, that, that, that was the epicenter of the religious life of God's people. And that was the place where the Holy of Holies was. It was the place of true worship. What Jesus was actually saying is that a time is going to come when he will become the epicenter of true worship. He was saying something in that moment that John records in chapter 2 of his gospel that's far deeper than what they're actually accusing him of falsely here on this evening. So just a little sidebar for us, since we're speaking of court things. Jesus has always been, and even to this day continues to be misrepresented. misrepresented. And people will always, they always have been and they continue to will be, always seek to discredit Jesus, to misrepresent Jesus. And you may have professors or co-workers maybe even some family members who, who seek to twist Jesus' words, who seek with their speech to discredit him, who he is, what he's done, and what he has said. Here's the thing. What we face now in the places where we live and the places where God has taken us is nothing new. Do not be dismayed. People have always sought to discredit Jesus. They've always sought to twist his words. And the reality of it is no one could discredit Jesus then on this night. And no one has ever been able to truly discredit Jesus even today. And so if you just think about this for a moment. Let yourself be present in what's happening here. Imagine the tension that has begun to build. 
This crowd that has been bent on destroying Jesus. They, they now have him, it seems, in their grasp. And they can't seem to find a consistent testimony against him. You see, according to their religious tradition and law, according to the Mishnah, there had to be two consistent testimonies against a defendant to find a defendant guilty of a charge. And according to the Mishnah, the testimony of a defendant was not allowed to incriminate the defendant. Any verdict of guilt had to come from the overwhelming evidence that was presented. And so here they are, having gotten to this place where they actually apprehended Jesus through the betrayal of one of his closest friends. They've fabricated this trial. They've got him standing right in front of them where they seem to want him. And they can't seem to even come up with two consistent testimonies against him because they don't exist. And so in a total act of what had to be irritation and exasperation, the, the high priest begins to take matters into his own hands. You can just imagine how frustrated he had to be at this point. And as we look at what happens here, don't forget, the high priest, he's the highest spiritual leader in Israel. I mean, he is the shepherd of the shepherds of God's people. And in this moment, in verse 60, Mark tells us the high priest stood up in the midst of the crowd and, and in the midst of the people and in the midst of the conflicting testimony, and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? I mean, what is it that these men testify against you? They can't seem to incriminate Jesus, so, so maybe if he shakes him a little bit, he, he rattles him a little bit, maybe he can get Jesus to incriminate himself, which technically, according to the law, would, would not be sufficient to find him guilty. But as you can already begin to see, this, this case isn't necessarily going by the book. Verse 61 says, Jesus, he remains silent, and he made no answer. No. Don't imagine Jesus standing there with his head drooped down and his shoulders kind of slumped, just hoping that it would all go away. Maybe a sense of resignation taking over his face, taking over his body. That's not what was happening there. One commentator said this is a moment in history, one of the few moments in history where we will ever be in the presence of what you can call true majestic silence. In his silence, there was no louder response that Jesus could give to the false accusations. I mean, just think about it for a moment. How easy would it have been for Jesus in that moment to just break the chains that have bound him, that they've tied him up and brought him here, to pick every accusation that they have leveled against him throughout this night apart, to do what all of our worthy Hollywood heroes would do at this moment. Isn't this the moment where they finally trump injustice? We're at the brink of despair. The hero finally finds a way out. He makes a great stand. Jesus is, as much as we may try to make him this way, Jesus is no man-made Hollywood hero for stories. In fact, as many people who have preached on this story like to say, this, this indeed is the true silence of the Lamb. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The high priest, Caiaphas, he couldn't handle the silence. He couldn't deal with the silence. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? This is the boiling point of the tension. Everything hangs in the balance regarding what's going to happen right here. If Jesus continues to refuse to answer and remain silent, they've got to find a new strategy. They can't get a consistent testimony against him. He's not incriminating himself. But if Jesus answers, the story goes in a completely different direction. See, so far as we've been going through the gospel according to Mark, Jesus has not yet wanted the full revelation of who he is to be known. Remember, we've seen over and over again that the people of Israel have, have had a false expectation of what the Messiah that God had promised was going to be like. Jesus, fully aware of, of what they expected and what they wanted throughout the entire story, he, he never let the full revelation of his personhood come out. Now, you and I as readers, we've known from the very beginning. And Mark started the book off, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Christ. We've known from the very beginning who he is, but as we've read the story, when the demons realize who he is and speak and screech in terror, he says, wait a minute, be quiet. Go on. When Peter, even, got a glimpse of who Jesus was and confessed him to be the Christ, Jesus immediately began to change the expectation and defined his messianic reign in that time as one of suffering, predicting for the first time what was going to happen here in Jerusalem. And then defining his mission for his disciples as being that of laying down his life as a ransom for many. There have been misguided expectations and desires for what the Messiah was going to be like. And with wisdom, Jesus has withheld the full revelation of who he was. But that's going to end right here. That's going to end in this moment. And why would it now end in this moment? Why of all times, when it could have come out, when he could have just said it, when he could have just let everyone know earlier, why not then and and why now? Well, now is the hour that has come. It's time for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath, his justice for our sins. So verse 62 Jesus responds, and he says, I am. This is the first open declaration of Jesus' full Messiahhood in the gospel according to Mark. I am. And you need to feel the full force of what he's actually saying here. Without any kind of caveat, without any kind of side explanation, Without anything else, Jesus declares that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And he answered that question directly and clearly and honestly, knowing that it would seal his fate and secure his death sentence. 
are you? I am. But he said something else as well. Jesus said, I am and you will. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In his answer, Jesus refers to two Old Testament messianic texts. You can find them in Psalm 101 and in Daniel chapter 7. And in effect, what Jesus was saying, and they would have clearly understood in hearing him say this, was something along this line. It may seem like you're here standing in judgment over me, but the reality of it is you will see a day when I am vindicated and the truth about me is clear to you. See, remember, we need to read the Bible in its context. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Jesus was leaning heavily on in his answer here, actually says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Go back and read it carefully. Read it out loud and listen to it clearly. Was Jesus talking about his coming from heaven to earth at the end of history? What we know to be his second coming? That's how we tend to read this verse. That's not actually what it says, though. Daniel 7 is not speaking of a coming to earth from heaven, but of a coming to God of the Son of Man coming to God to receive vindication and authority. Daniel 7 is speaking of a vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, to receive His kingdom, a new kingdom and an everlasting dominion. Mark 14, 62, it's it's not about the second coming of Jesus coming one day in judgment at the end of history, but it's about His enthronement as King and Lord in the very middle of history. What they understood because they knew the Bible when they heard Jesus answer this, I am the Christ and you will see this, is you will witness the vindication of Jesus, the, the true prophet, and you will see and you will understand that I am indeed the Messiah. They will see, they will see him in the sense that they'll no longer have any excuses. They'll see him And they'll know that he's been vindicated. In just a matter of days, they're going to see Jesus rise from the dead. In a matter of days after that, Jesus is going to ascend to be with the Father, where he is indeed right now sitting at the right hand of God in power. In a matter of years from that point, they will see the fall of Jerusalem come. They will see that very temple destroyed. And they will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was indeed and is indeed the Messiah. At this, I am and you will. The high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witness do we need? Now this is quite a show that's going on right here. 
the tearing of the garments, the tearing of the shirt, the tearing of the outer layer. You, you read about it throughout the Bible story. It, it's an expression, it's a, it's a physical expression of, of complete uh, destitution and, and sorrow. But it's a show right here. Because while the high priest may be tearing his clothes at what Jesus has said, inside he's jumping up and down like a two-year-old. Because in his mind he's got him. He's got him. Nothing about what they've done so far followed the book of the law. So why should the law against one incriminating themselves stand here either? What else do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all, verse 64 says, they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. They were looking square into the face of the one who had taught people to love their enemies. Square into the eyes of the ones who had fed those who were hungry. They were looking square into the face of the one who had healed those who could not see, who gave hearing to those who could not hear, who cleansed those with disease, who raised people from the dead. They were looking at him square in the eye, the very Son of God. And all they can say is blasphemer. Blasphemer. You have robbed God of his glory. And the whole thing from top to bottom is an absolute mockery of justice. You couldn't try these kinds of cases according to the Mishnah at night. There were rules against that. You certainly didn't try them in the house of the high priest. They had to happen in the courtroom. There had to be two consistent testimonies of witnesses against the condemned. Their own testimony couldn't convict them. There had to be an overwhelming weight of evidence against them to bring this kind of conviction. And then lastly, according to the Mishnah, you could not make a final pronouncement of guilt or condemnation against someone in a capital case until two days after the trial because they had what they called a cooling off period, a silent period, where they had to go after the trial and to think and to pray on their decisions before they could come and bring their verdict. The whole thing... It's a mockery of justice. And if it wasn't bad enough, verse 65 says at this point, with his condemnation having been brought, at this point everything that was inside finally gets to come out. No more governors on the heart. No more regulators on the behavior. It's like the floodgates finally opened. Verse 65 says at this point some began to spit on him and to cover his face and Strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And they hand him over to the guards. And the guards just continue on what they saw from the council. And the guards received him with blows. Why? Why would Jesus submit to such injustice such a farce. 
Why would he submit to such cruelty? Charles Spurgeon, in trying to answer that question, he said, brothers and sisters, this, this, this whole moment, this is what our sin deserved. A, a shameful thing art thou, O sin. Thou does deserve to be spit upon. This is what our sin is constantly doing to Christ. Whenever you and I sin, we, we do, as it were, spit in his face. We also hide his eyes by trying to forget that he sees us. And we also strike him whenever we transgress and grieve his spirit. Do not talk of cruel counsels. Let us think of ourselves and let us be humbled by the thought. This is what the ungodly world is ever doing to our blessed master. They, they also would hide his eyes, which are the very light of the world. They also despise his gospel and spit upon it as an utterly worn out and worthless thing. They also do, despite to the members of his body, through his poor and afflicted saints who have to bear slander and abuse for his dear sake. And yet, over all of this, I seem to see a light most blessed. Christ must be spit upon, for he has taken our sin. Christ must be beaten, for he is standing in our stead. Why would he submit to such injustice and such cruelty? Well, it's necessary because of sin. It's necessary because of my sin. It's necessary because of your sin. But yet in this moment when sin seems to abound so much, grace does abound all the more. You see, Jesus has already helped us and tried to help us understand how we're to see what's happening here and how we're to actually respond to it. He's already set us up for this moment. He's already taken us here and laid the path for us to see what's happening from a certain perspective and then to understand how we're to respond to it. If you've been with us through our journey in Mark's gospel, you might remember back in Mark chapter 12, Jesus told a parable about a vineyard owner. And this owner had prepared a, a plot of land to plant a vineyard. And after he had done all the hard work of getting his land ready to plant this vineyard, he hired tenants to come and work the vineyard. And he went away for a far distance. And when the time came for the vineyard to be producing fruit, he sent servants to go and retrieve the fruit that was his as the vineyard owner. And if you remember the story in Mark chapter 12, the tenants that the, the vineyard owner had hired to then run the vineyard, they beat some of the servants some of them, Mark says, they killed. If you go back and read the story, Jesus told, said in the parable, he, the vineyard owner still had another, a, a beloved son. And finally, he sent his beloved son to the vineyard, to the tenants, to retrieve the fruit. But if you remember the story, the wicked tenants in the vineyard, they saw the beloved son coming. And do you remember what they did to him? They killed him. They beat him. They killed him. And then they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus told that story 
And do you remember how he ended it? Mark chapter 12. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's already given us the lenses with which we're to look at what's going on here. They are rejecting the stone. The chief cornerstone is being rejected, and yet it's God's doing. Why would he submit to such cruelty, such injustice? There was nothing there according to the law of Israel that would allow him to stand condemned before that council legally, but yet he submitted. Why? Because the stone the builders rejected, according to the plan of God, would become the cornerstone. And he said, that's to be marvelous. Marvelous in our eyes. Are you the Christ? I am. And in that, we're meant to marvel. We're meant to be completely awed. In Jesus, who sealed his fate for us. We're meant to marvel at the rejection. Marvel at Jesus in the mockery. Marvel at Jesus in the beating. Marvel at Jesus in the spitting. Marvel at Jesus in the mockery. Marvel at everything that's taking place here because it was God's doing. Because of his love. And we're meant to be astonished. This is God's love for sinners. And God means for us to be marvel, marveled by it, awed by it. As I thought about it this week, I, I wondered if, if this moment in the life of Jesus was it all rattling around in the Apostle Paul's head when he was writing to the church in Rome? Because this is what I kept thinking as I was thinking about the story and thinking about what, well, what does it mean to actually marvel at this? I mean, recognizing the reality of my sin and what my sin deserved and recognizing and according to the plan of God what Jesus had to endure because of my sin. And all I could think about was something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome when he said, what in the world are we supposed to say to these things? I mean, what do we say to this? I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If out of love for sinners like you and I, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up to the humiliation of a sham trial before a high priest, before Sanhedrin, later before Pilate. Didn't spare him, but gave him up to the lying accusations of men, the conspiracy of judges against him, to the betrayal from one of his closest friends, 
to the officials and the courts, the, the shepherds of Israel beating him and spitting on him and mocking him, falsely condemning him. If out of love for sinners like you and like me, God did not spare his own son but delivered him up, how will he not graciously then give us all things? God did not spare his own son that you and I might be pardoned for our sins, that we might enjoy the full and complete forgiveness of all of our sins. He loved you and gave himself up for you. He loved you standing there He loved you listening to the false accusations. He loved you listening to the mockery. He loved you speaking honestly, sealing his fate. He loved you being spit in the face. He loved you while he's being beaten. He loved you and he gave himself up for you. Is that marvelous in your eyes? In just a moment, we're we're going to respond to this. God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, not just to the injustice, not just to the cruelty in the moment here, but ultimately to the breaking of his body on the cross, to the pouring out of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to marvel at that together as we receive communion this morning. But I want to, I want to say this morning, if you're here and, and you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that in God's kindness, you can't understand it as anything other than that. In His kindness, He actually has you here today. I don't know what circumstances you think brought you here, But in God's kindness and in God's grace, he brought you here today to hear from the gospel according to Mark that you might repent of your sin, your sin that required this suffering from God's Son. And this morning, I would stand here and and I would plead with you. I I would ask you, I, I would plead with you to repent of your sin and to receive Jesus as your substitute and as your Savior. Because here's the thing, one day, the day will come. There is going to come a day when we will all see the Son of Man coming. He's promised to return again one day, but on that day when He returns, all sin, all evil, it's all going to be exposed and it's all going to be judged. If you have not repented of your sin and by faith placed your hope in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your King, you will not get another chance then. And on that day, you will face Him as your judge. But I promise you, if you turn from your sin and trust in this Son as your substitute, for the forgiveness of your sins by the grace of God, by the grace of God, you will be able to join us this morning at marveling at the Son who gave Himself up for you. 
And as we prepare this morning to respond by receiving communion, I, I, I want you to hear the words of a much wiser pastor than I. He gives this word to us this morning in thinking about the marvel of Jesus' sacrifice. He says, this mercy of God in giving up the Son. He said, it never makes sin cheap. Don't be mistaken. Standing in awe at the grace of God through the work of Christ, marveling at what He has done out of love for sinners like you and I, it will never make sin cheap. And when you truly see it for what it is, and it becomes marvelous in your eyes, it will not lead to a life of licentiousness, but it will always sanctify your soul to Christ. And when you get this, you will love Him, and you will hate your sins. He said, here it is, though. How will He not graciously give us that blessing of forgiveness? Don't despair if your sins lie as a burden upon your spirit. Confess them before the Lord. He will nourish your soul. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, there are so many things that capture our attention, that stir our affection, that if someone asked us what is it that we marvel at, if we're really honest, Lord, this would not be at the top of the list. And this morning I ask that you would do by your Holy Spirit the work that only you can do in each heart in here this morning. Father, we want to see, we want to see the wisdom and the mercy and the love of you sparing not your only son, but giving him up for us. We want to see the work of Jesus as our substitute, as our Savior, in our place for our sins. We want to see it for what it is, and we want to marvel at it. Lord, I ask this morning that you would do the work that only you can do in each heart, that you would bring us to a place where we can marvel. Marvel at your grace. Marvel at your work. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name, for his glory, for, for our joy. Amen.